coming. Who's pulling on a leaving? There ain't gonna be no leavings. All that stuff's just jerking time. Welcome to the Mad Max Minute. There ain't gonna be no leavings because we're here to talk about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 63, which begins with Max just like, I don't know, thinking about life and stuff, man. And it ends with Kusha standing up to Slake. As we start this minute here on a Friday, we fade in on the crack in the earth and it's a slow tilt down into the camp. We pass the rocks. We see the sunlight shining in. We pass by some stuff over to the side and we settle in on just Max sitting there with Sally Ann. He's got a walking stick of some kind and he's just sitting there hanging out. When movies have heavy emotional moments like what we just witnessed the past few minutes, often we don't see the aftermath. Mm -hmm. We cut to something else. I like that we see the aftermath. The awkward silence where yeah. nobody really knows what to say. Yeah. And it's Awkward and it's silent. It goes back to what we were talking about on Wednesday, the whole idea of we don't know how much time has passed. Is it the same day? Is it a day or two from then? How long have they been back from the plane? If this is the sort of thing where they came back from the plane and then everyone left Max alone, if they went back and slept on it and then they woke up the next day and it was really awkward and they didn't know what to do, it's like we don't have an idea of the time frame for that. And I know that time frame's not important, doesn't really matter exactly how long it's been between things, but it's the kind of stuff that I wonder about. It is. And I think... The amount of time that has passed affects our interpretation of how the waiting ones are handling Max's reaction. Mm -hmm. Max is walking away in their ultimate moment where they were expecting to be, what's the word for when the good people are going to be taken up? Raptured. Yes. When they expected to be raptured in this religious analogy that we've been running with, their savior walked away. Mm -hmm. I'm curious if this is right away, if this is, well, soon after everybody finally returned to the crack and this is the beginning of their silent, awkward phase, or if, like you said, it might be the next morning and this has been going on for some time, for hours, I think it makes a difference. And actually, based on what happens in the second half of this minute, I think some time has passed. I think that's pretty fair to say. It's been long enough, at least, for Max to more or less collect himself and sit off by his lonesome. He's got his own walking stick that he found, so that's kind of cool. I'm looking at him sitting here, though, and despite however much time has passed, my main thing that I'm wondering is what is Max's plan here? It's not like it was at the end of Road Warrior where his car was destroyed and he was brought back to the compound by the gyro captain and now he's in a position to either be dragged along with these people left behind to face the raiders or to help them drive. There's no driving to be done. There's no vehicle for him to be taken in or to take himself. His situation is quite the opposite. In Road Warrior, the safest course of action was for the group to move. Mm -hmm. Here, the safest course of action is for the group to not move. Yeah. 
And also, Max knows what it cost him physically to get there. He very nearly died. So he knows that there's nothing out there that it is going to very nearly kill them to try and get back to Barter Town, which isn't even the best destination, and who knows beyond that. Mm-hmm. So I think he is sitting there starting the process of settling in. It looks to you that he's thinking of settling down. Is that the impression that you get? Yes. Because that's kind of the impression that I get. He's never found himself in quite the same environment since the collapse. This is pretty unique. Yeah. He's got all the fresh water he could ask for, plenty of space to hunt and gather and sustain. He could live out the rest of his wasteland existence very comfortably in this area, with the added caveat that there's a tribe of children that don't particularly like him that he would be staying with. (laughs) So maybe that's what he's contemplating right now. He might be contemplating, do I stay with the tribe of children and try to instruct them in the things that I've learned over my lifetime, or do I just... Just gather up the things that are mine, which is not a lot, and go find somewhere else to settle in. It's a big river. He could follow it down Mm -hmm. just somewhere, anywhere, and just go Lewis and Clark it somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Max has the worldly knowledge that the waiting ones don't, that the confluence of oceans and rivers is a common place for people to settle. So it might be a good plan, whether or not the waiting ones want to go with him, Mm -hmm. with or without their help. It'd be great if they helped, but he could manage it on his own, build a raft, float downriver, looking for other civilization. Yeah. Based on what Max says next week, I think he's definitely erring on the side of sticking around and keeping an eye on these kids. Yes. As much as prior experience with Max would dictate that he would not be satisfied with staying in one place. He's not satisfied with dying either. So Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot of the things that we're wondering right now get answered in the next few minutes. Exactly. It's kind of rough to speculate because we know the answers. Yeah, we're at that (laughs) point. Yeah. Something about this scene that I do really like and really appreciate is that Sally Ann is once again showing her particular loyalty to Max. She has been hanging out with other people and eating other people's food and playing with other people for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. It's possible that they haven't had quality time together since before Max got knocked off the camel wagon. Yes, Sally Ann did bring him the water in the desert, but I think he was too weak and sick at the time for them to strengthen their bond. Although, no, 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 no. I take that back. I take that back. Because the very act of her bringing him water and him sharing his water with her and then carrying her and sheltering her from the wind and the sun is acts of bonding between an owner and a pet. Never mind. Okay. But anyways, Sally Ann is back with Max. She's no longer hanging out with Eddie and Gus Gus or Screw Loose or anyone else. <laughs> it's Max Gus and Gus. Sally Ann again. Was the other kid's name Gus? The other kid was named Gus. Okay. I just like that you called him Gus Gus. Well, yeah, because of the mouse from Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Like everyone picked up on that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think we should explain the joke a little bit more. Speaking of other kids, 
Speaking of the other waiting ones, we get a shot of a raised platform and there are several waiting ones that are just peering out from behind things and staring daggers down at Max. And they've all got apples that they're eating or some sort of fruit or whatever. And <laughs> we, we haven't mentioned the CinemaSins guys in a long time, but they have this running joke that whenever you see someone in a movie eating an apple, it's because they need to look like a mean person or someone that's just generally an a-hole. And so they tagged this moment that all of these kids have apples to make them look like a-holes. I think that's very telling. The first time that we saw Max and the kids together, not so much in the movie, but in the screenplay, they presented him, they gifted him aggressively with food. Now, not so much. Yeah, they're keeping all of their food to themselves. Yes. I think they feel betrayed, but also curious. If this guy isn't Captain Walker, then who is he? Yeah. If he is Captain Walker, why is he behaving this way? I don't think they hate him or despise him. I think maybe they don't know what to make of him anymore. They trust him less. They're giving him a much wider berth because he's no longer a known quantity. And I also feel that probably some of them are upset with themselves for being so easily taken in on what turned out to be a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a malicious trick or Savannah trying to fool all of them. It was an honest mistake. Mm-hmm. That no one gave Max the opportunity to explain himself, but they all got taken in by it, and so... Probably a few of them feel a little uh, upset at themselves. As with any religion, different members of that religion are going to have varying levels of zeal. And I take Savannah for an example of someone who has a high level of zeal. And she put a lot of her apples in this one basket. <laughs> and some people followed her and put all their apples in this basket. And this basket fell apart. Mm -hmm. And now there's apples spilled all over the place. And there's confusion. And some of the apples broke or are bruised and are now inedible. It's chaos. And for the people who put more of their apples into that basket, it's more chaotic for them as opposed to the people like Kusha, which also this wasn't really translated to the movie. But in the screenplay, she was all less on board with this whole thing than Savannah was. Mm -hmm. She's not feeling as chaotic or not as many of her apples are rolling all over the ground. So there's varying levels and people feel different ways. In any religion, no matter how unified a people are, everybody is invested differently, which I think contributes to the group that we're going to see by the end of this minute. Right. Before we get to them, though, we cut back to Max and his gaze drops. Like he was sitting there by the water. He raised his eyes to look over at these kids that were staring at him. They looked back and then he kind of dropped his gaze back down again and he remained seated. We get another wider shot of that same platform to reveal that there are even more children keeping a close eye on Max. And then we cut back to Max once again. We go back and forth just those two or three times back and forth between Max and the kids. And it takes all the way up until second 49 before this awkward silence is broken by the sound of the camp gong. I love that camp gong because when there is an awkward silence present, the longer it goes, the harder it is to break. Mm -hmm. And anything that makes a noise is amplified and feels more important. So why not make it the loudest, most important noise that you have in camp, 
which is their gong. Mm -hmm. So she uses it to get everybody's attention so that she can now start talking in a relatively normal way. Right. Everybody's attention is there. So Savannah can step forward and say, who's coming? We's pulling on a leaving. And I love Savannah's indomitable spirit because the Captain Walker mythos didn't pay off for her. So she's not going to sit there waiting anymore. It's time to take their fate into their own hands. And she's pulling on a leaving. This time, it's not to find someone. It's to find somewhere. They know that there's a Tomorrow Morrowland out there somewhere. They've held on to that much. And they're going to find it themselves. They're not going to sit around and wait any longer. I like that Savannah wasn't so stuck on the perceived miracle from a few minutes ago that she couldn't accept the truth when it was presented to her. She didn't allow that mythos to be so strong in her head that she couldn't see that whether or not he's Captain Walker, he walked away. He rejected their expectation that he was going to save them. He might be Captain Walker, but he still can't make the plane fly. Mm -hmm. So it really doesn't matter whether or not he's Captain Walker. But she saw the truth of it, that he is not going to save them. So she is able to move on from that. Yeah, I like that she doesn't sit there for days and days on end, which I don't know with that with how long that fade to black was. It could have been days on days on end. <laughs> But that's not the point. I like that she doesn't sit there dwelling on the situation and let it consume her life. She dusts herself off and decides on the next course of action. I think that's really cool. One person that does not consider that to be very cool is Slake. He steps out of a hut or from underneath a platform and he very specifically says, there ain't gonna be no leavings. Savannah and Slake have two very different roles in the community. Savannah was the most recent adult to take the leaving. So she's prepared for that type of activity. Mm -hmm. She already did this once. She can do it again. She was semi-successful the first time. So who knows what could happen the second time. Slake being the de facto leader and the head tracker, his job is to sustain the group where they are. His job is to make sure that this community has enough to eat. So his whole world revolves around this community being in this place. Mm -hmm. So they have two very different perspectives on how they relate to the community. And also two very different interpretations of what Max has already told them. We're not going to see that till no. next week. All we get this week is a very low angle on Slake as he steps out of that hut. And not only is Slake on this side of the conversation, but Anna Goanna is there as well. We've already mentioned in the past how she's sort of not drinking the Kool-Aid that Savannah's passing out. The two of them apparently don't get along according to the book, right? Right. So she's definitely on Slake's side. And I love the angle that they use because it's very low. It makes Slake seem very large. Mm-hmm. It definitely accentuates how much bigger and older he is, which I'm not really sure that they needed to do that. The actress that they put in for Anna Goanna seems very young to me. Mm -hmm. She seems very small. Maybe it's the bangs. It's probably the bangs. Yeah, that make her look very young and uh, immature. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd call her immature. So putting her next to Slake, who is a grown man. I'm not sure that they needed 
to bring in that low angle, but it did make him seem more imposing. Yeah. Which he was in this moment, he is imposing his power upon the other people. Yeah. It's not so much we need to make him look larger. It's like we need to visual shorthand say that he is the opposing party and he's the one that's trying to keep everybody down. Mm -hmm. I love his phrasing when he says all that stuff's just jerking time. I interpreted that as the leaving their plan is just a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And Kusha responds. Oh, that, I love this. Yeah. We's working it different. And with she, so much sass. She's got the sass and she also steps forward like around Savannah mm -hmm. in order to address Slake specifically. And this is also where I get the sense that Kusha and Slake have some sort of history together. The way she steps forward so forcefully to say, you're wrong. Or not so much you're wrong, but we have a different idea. I think I agree with you there. If not a sexual relationship, then at the very least, a long-standing relationship, which is kind of the default here. Right. Everybody has a long-standing relationship. I think they know each other very, very well. And if Kusha has assumed a position of authority in the community, then she would have worked more closely with Slake and would have felt equal to standing up to power mm -hmm. in this way. Yeah, we've seen Kusha several times leading up to this point. This isn't her first appearance or even I think the first thing we've heard from her, but it seems like a good enough time to talk about the actress who plays Kusha, the pregnant girl. She is played by Tony Alalis. Now, as with many times before, there is very little helpful information about Tony Alalis on IMDb. I have her top four, which contains Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the television show Police Rescue. She was in one episode in 1991. She was in 1984's Fast Talking, which might sound familiar when we were talking about Rod Zwanek. He was in Fast Talking alongside Steve Bisley. So she played Vicky in that movie. And she was also in another TV series called Winners, where she played Claire Guthrie in the episode The Other Facts of Life. The one thing that is not mentioned in her top four is the fifth thing she acted in was a TV movie called Crime of the Decade in 1984. So she had a pretty narrow acting career, all things told. But as I was searching her name on Google, I kept getting hits for music sites, which piqued my interest. It turns out, according to my research, that Tony Alalis was a member of the All Nighters, which is an Australian ska pop band based in Sydney between 1980 and 1987. Apparently, in 1984, the All Nighters brought in a new lineup of studio band, including the members of a group called the Igniters, which featured Tony Alalis as a vocalist. Oh, so she's one of the musicians. Yeah, she is one of the more musically inclined children in the acting group. So getting back to the minute, Kusha stepping forward is really the last thing that happens and we've got to cut it off because as soon as she steps forward, Slake fires back and he's got a ton of stuff that he's going to say at the very top of week 22. So we need to save that for then so that way we're not rolling into other material. I am a little surprised that this week was not as barren of content as I originally expected. Yes, this Friday episode is a bit shorter than the other two we've had, but I think we handled it pretty well. Not to pat ourselves on the back. I don't want to throw <laughs> out a shoulder. 
or anything like that. Well, whenever we're talking about the waiting ones, there's so much that we don't know about them Mm -hmm. that there is a lot to conjecture and surmise to guess. They're ripe for speculation. Yeah, they really, really are. But I am so looking forward to week 22 because we're going to start off on Monday. We're going to see Slake and Savannah going head to head on whether it's better for them to stay put or to keep searching for Tomorrow Morrowland. And at the very end of Monday's minute, Max is going to join the conversation, which is just going to offer a whole different perspective on the argument. So it's going to be really cool seeing them going back and forth. Before we come back on Monday, though, there's always our weekend show, week 21 of Anarchy Road. We have finally got to the point where Peter has his happy thought. He has regained the ability to fly. Shenanigans ensue and Rufio pledges his loyalty to Peter once again. However, it's up to Tinkerbell to remind Peter why he came back to Neverland in the first place. So jump on our Patreon to find all of that. Join us on the weekend. Otherwise, we will be back on Monday to talk more about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 63 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time. Over!